0: The Time Out for Mental Health podcast is where we speak to sports figures about their experience with mental health issues related to depression, masculinity, and suicide. These sensitive topics are often swept under the rug. as detailed in my new book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, a simple book for men about depression, masculinity, and suicide. Men in particular need support to ask for help when they feel off and don't know what is is really going on with them. If they do not seek help, their behavior can turn dangerous, including alcoholism, drug and pill addiction, anger, fighting, violence, and in some cases, death by suicide. On the podcast, we want to uncover these issues so men can live a happy and healthy life, even if they do suffer from mental health issues. Our guest today is my good friend, Dr. Richard Olberger, one of the foremost authorities in psychological services featuring sports psychology when it comes to today's coaches and athletes at any level. We're honored that Dr. Richard is sharing some of his time with us. Dr. Richard, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well. I'm honored to be here, and uh, it's a crucial time in, in in Los Angeles and in the, the world history, so I'm, I'm uh, honored to be uh, a guest on your show and and to be supporting the work you're doing.
0: Thank you. Yeah, it's an unbelievable time out there. I, I never experienced anything like this, even going back to the '68 riots. This is this is wild. Well, Richard, you have developed your practice on your website, RichardListens.com. Your podcast also available on RichardListens.com all around your fields of expertise. Tell us a little about your practice and your podcast.
1: My goal is, um, I mean, my practice has been, I've been practicing psychologists for over 12 years. Uh, feels like sometimes it's been a calling for a lot longer than that. Uh, but I started out working in, in trauma and crisis uh, riding along with uh policemen on on mental health issues that were going on uh before having the courage to launch my own practice full time starting in in twenty ten and i've always been inspired by I'm, I'm a sports fan uh, an athlete i've always tried to push myself even as a uh as a father as a, you know to, to keep healthy to find ways to combat my own stress. Uh, through mental health. So my practice has launched into, I've always wanted to work with athletes and teams, but I understand that high performance goes along, goes a lot further than those realms. Uh, so the most of the people that I see in my office uh, are, um, you know, doctors, lawyers, people who have been on the front line of the COVID crisis, coaches, uh, and parents, uh, because sports parenting is kind of on steroids these days. It's like the level of involvement, the level of investment is is going to you know much greater lengths with the access to more and more resources. Absolutely. Now
0: you have a PhD in clinical psychology, and you deal with issues on uh, as behavioral issues, depression, men's issues, relationship issues, substance abuse, trauma ptsd and mental health and and more you're a facebook and instagram you're on facebook and instagram at richard listens and you have advanced content at patreon.com richard listens did you ever think you'd be such an influencer in all
1: these areas uh you know of course not, right? I mean, I think some of it's like learning to play in the playground where everybody is available and reachable right now. Um, you know, my I'm now being pushed to step into a TikTok. I've just downloaded the app. I haven't put anything on it yet. So I think there's this, even with, you know, Instagram, you know, there's there's this like novice – not knowing what to do, even, you know, um, and at the same time, this true desire to reach people where they are spending a lot of their time. So uh, I don't by any means think I'm a, you know, content expert. I do try and present uh, my experiences that I see in the world. And what I think is really rich, what I'm watching an athlete, what I'm experiencing in the world, I think um, to offer it to other people, I know what it's like to – raise a family, to be a son. I know what it's like to grieve. I know what it's like to see suffering in family members or friends. Uh, Monday, we celebrated a three-year uh, anniversary of a suicide of one of my childhood best friends. So uh, the more I've gone along, and I, I, there's always been this idea in psychology about keeping your professional and your personal life separate, Or and I've just learned that I, I have to integrate both. And obviously in a, in a filtered way, we don't want to give everyone every access to everything in our waking life uh, unnecessarily. Uh, But there are things that I see and experience, which I think can help other people because uh, you know, they may have not gone through it yet, or they may be going through it and just have no idea how to communicate or have the tools to to express around what they're going through.
0: Yeah, I, I can identify with that. I, in my book, um, it it's my personal story, but it weaves through all these topics of, of depression and masculinity, masculinity in the workplace, um, masculinity and suicide. It it, it all comes together, and, and that was part of my story. You know, I, I lived that. And uh, as soon as I got sober, I was able to see that I wanted to share my story with others so others don't have to go through what I went
1: through. Um, yeah, and I'm glad you put you put the book out there. And I know the title is it's a little you know jarring and shocking, but you know for a lot of men, um, you know if anyone's read uh, Brene Brown's work or seen her YouTube videos, you know she does some case studies. You take a look at you know generals of war that come home. You know people are wanting to be reached, but they just they don't know how, or they have these competing mechanisms inside themselves. It says. I desperately need support, but I've got to be the provider. I've got to be the man. And without understanding how to reconcile those two, they'll always go back to the default of, you know, this is my identity. And so even when it's hurting you, even when it's paining you and, and it's completely leaving you uh, alone and isolated in pain, uh, there's a tendency for men to, to stay on that, that position that, that's harmful for themselves.
0: Yep. Very true. So how would you describe your style of teaching or consulting that you use in these areas?
1: Um, I mean, I have combined, you know, a hybrid eclectic approach uh, that combines performance psychology with humanistic psychology. Uh, I use something called somatic experience, which is trying to get people to drop into their bodies and into the moment. Uh, We're so busy Moving faster, planning, moving, reacting. Uh, And if you're an athlete or a high performer, you need to do those things at even an accelerated rate. So helping people to slow down and check in with what's really going on or where what's, what's triggering them and where does that come from? Why is one person impacted by a loss or, or a missed swing or a strikeout or a conversation with their coach or spouse in one way and another one completely differently? So helping only the individual who's sitting in front of me can understand themselves, and so I have to help them unlock – that path to greater self understanding.
0: Is there a central message that you try and and get across or is that unique for everybody? I
1: think I'm trying to encourage everybody to kind of to unlock the hero within. I think that it's whether you are a stay at home mom who has three kids in zoom classes right now, and you've got to make sure their lunch schedules on time, or if you're an ER doctor, who's got to stand there, while debating whether their protective equipment is significant and still save lives. Uh, or you're, you know, a, a a policeman who has to go out there feeling really, uh, not sure if people even want you there right now, that there are degrees of stress and, and heroism that you need to bring out within you to do the best job you possibly can without allowing that stress to, to impact your judgment, uh, in a negative manner. So, Uh, I want each person to kind of tune those skills. And so mental skills, you know, training is not just for uh, MMA fighters or for people, uh, you know, Clayton Kershaw.
0: Tell me, what's the most challenging aspect of what you do?
1: I mean, certainly I think there's a degree of – uh, trying to really, you have to really b- have confidence that that you're going to help someone. If somebody is really accomplished and elite, there is a degree of reverence, uh, especially for sports figures coming up where you respect them and, and you look up to, I look up to them personally and I look up to the team and you. I want to be in that environment. So I think the challenge is to bring the same degree of truth and authenticity and not being afraid to confront and bring out hard truths, uh, with the risk of that, that they may, uh, you know, not want to continue the work. So I think being willing to take that risk, uh, that's really hard and, and asking athletes to take that risk when there's been so much stigma perhaps in their past around, if I say I'm anxious, is this going to get back to my coach? If I say that I'm depressed about something and i have been my whole life um you know what what's is that going to go on my team record and then nobody want to touch me and give me a contract so uh those those are challenging areas to to convince someone that it's safe and to have trust when you know they have so much on the line and all the reasons not to
0: very true you speak my language brother
1: <laughs> i know you do uh, you're a sportsman your whole life. I know <laughs> that's for sure. And I'm missing an antique. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, what is Tim doing right now? You were at sorry, how many Dodger games a year?
0: No, no, not Dodgers. Not them. Lakers and Kings and just uh, I just can't. It, it's been it's been a challenge. Thank God I've got this book experience in front of me, and and I've been working so hard with my publicist, Therese Fisher, that. You know, we're we're on it all the time. So that keeps me out of trouble.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's been an opportunity to focus. Uh, yeah. But every time you come up, you're like,
0: where's my sports? Yeah,
1: <laughs>
0: so you talk about spiritual psychology, and maybe not a lot of our listeners know really what that is. Could you give us a, an idea of what you mean by that?
1: Sure, I can. I, it, it should be fresh. I just did a podcast yesterday focusing on uh, my former graduate school, Saybrook Graduate School, and uh, the journey that led me towards spiritual psychology. And, and I think, you know, first we start with humanism, right? Humanism is seeing the person in front of you, not as a sum, uh, you know, not as part of an ailment, or what's wrong with them or what their diagnosis is, right? Some of psychology or is viewing people under this psychopathology lens. We treat what, the, what your deficits are. So humanism is seeing the person as, you know, the full person with all respect to their perspectives, that they may have a totally different way of looking at an event based on upbringing, culture, uh, family history, birth order, taking in all of that all of who they are, and then spiritual psychology extends beyond that. It's how does a person define themselves in terms of their connection to something greater and, and being able to study that the looks at whether the people were, you know, whatever religious faith you may be from, whatever dogma or practices, uh, whether it be shamanism, Christianity, Ju- Judaism, what those practices do for emotional and physical well-being including in states of uh, lack of health, right? If somebody has gone through stage four cancer and starts to practice uh, a form of meditation, can it improve your health to have this spiritual connection to others and to be engaging in spiritual practices? So for me, that became fascinating. I was always grown up in New York with with people who were very different, all different races in the classroom. And so, and I, and I always felt more similar to people on the playground, maybe than the people who were supposed to be from my, you know, uh, ethnic or religious background. So that's always been the quest for me. And so I think for athletes in particular, you know, spirituality is something that, you know, connects them to something bigger uh, when they're not, they're not on the field where they're not having to perform and uh, gives them a place to center and listen to really what are their messages, not just this one coach, not this is one organization. Uh, There's a lot of pressures going on. So having some sort of spiritual place or practice that's just yours where you can get quiet and where you can really figure out what is it that you're needing as an individual in that moment and what's going to fill you up. And, and sometimes that's not, you know, the answer that anybody else can give you or dictate to you. It's funny that you mentioned that, that in my book, one
0: part of my description of masculinity is that the man must have some form of spirituality in his life. No matter what it is, no matter how he connects that that 's an important part of being a man is realizing that there is a spiritual element to you, so I really
1: like that yeah, um, yeah, and I know you 've done i believe you 've done certain you know men centered practices that connect men to other men, uh, you know, and I was always amazed even working on Skid Row in this place of you know, depravity. Our clinic at the time was literally a trailer, mm-hmm. and yet the AA meetings that I got to sit in on had this tremendous camaraderie. I mean, these people literally were barely getting, I think, two hundred nineteen dollars a month of whatever general relief is, and they would all bring crackers and 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 they would have a potluck meal and of true care. And, and so, how do we like? My question for you, Tim, is how we bring those kind of Principles and practices uh, to men it doesn't have to be once you've had an addictive disorder that we need that support absolutely uh, I believe that
0: the education experience for uh, everyone starting the younger the better as far as what it is to be a man and masculinity so that boys they grow up with the proper tools of of self-knowledge of masculinity and they don't have to relearn after they've watched John Wayne movies or somebody pounding their chest or all all the toxic masculinity that goes on today and they can understand that they're human beings they they have feelings and emotions and in the proper place, the proper time with the proper person, it's fine to share that. You're not weak. In fact, it takes more courage to do that and ask for help. So I totally understand. Looking back at, at all your work, um, tell us about what's been the most gratifying experience that you've uh, gone through with maybe some of your patients or teams or individuals.
1: Um, you know, there's so much I've, I've really loved the last three, four years, the journey into Richard listens onto a podcast that the, the ability to own my space, you know, we call it the men's work, my domain, right. Uh, coming from a place like Skid Row where you have so little control that you you're fighting for 10 or 20 minutes in a, in a room that you're not getting interrupted. So the ability to create a space and to have conversations with people about their journey and like we discussed earlier being a high performer sometimes i had basketball players on my podcast that had left due to an injury and then discovered they were meant to be writers mm. uh you know and once and uh, you know i have a former football player uh who came on the show and then due to injury discovered his passion for neuroscience and found himself you know studying at fisheries in norway uh, you know, like the journeys of high performers and being able to tease that out. Someone called me recently a great extractor. So other than the dental reference, I think that's a great compliment. You know, so there, there's so many stories now. Um, and, and even through the quarantine, the ability to sit down with more and more people. I mean, I'm really enjoying the work with MMA fighters. Um, you know, I can say it because he's you know recently been on the show telling stories of uh, Lyman good overcame, you know, his own battle with coronavirus. So being able to create a platform for people and the teams that I work with being able to uh, ride along with uh windward high school here in Los Angeles last year, as they, uh, you know, their journey, uh, which was like the last game we went to before they closed everything down. Uh, but being able to see a team from this time last year, as they practice in the summer, as they get closer, like, you know, realize that there's expectations on them and still exceed them, uh, you know, and, and being able to support coaches. For me, it's very fulfilling in this role because I'm, I'm not just doing one thing. Um, so it's, there's many aspects to the work, but I'd say being able to, uh, those are the two, two freshest examples, you know, from helping people go in the ring, MMA, you know, just tremendous courage and and willingness to conquer your fear, Um, and yet you have to be vulnerable. So, uh, uh, you know, this, this willingness to do the work and open yourself up and and be authentic, be vulnerable and also be fearless. It gives me a lot of courage to, to, to work with athletes, uh, at this level.
0: One thing you brought up that I got to mention, um, once a month with a couple other guys, I go down to the midnight mission, uh, on a Sunday evening and, we conduct a 12 step meeting and it's, there's something there that is so powerful. And, you know, I've even had one of the participants come up to me afterwards and ask if I would be his sponsor. And it's just, uh, it's amazing that these people who come in off the street are united in that meeting to try and help themselves and, you know, young and old, you know, I've seen 20 year old gangbangers to, you know, 80 year old men that are uh, seeking help and know that they, they have to learn something in order to change. So.
1: Yeah. I mean, full, full disclosure, Tim. I mean, you know, I always thought, you know, for me, where I was at in my life, uh, I considered, I was sent, the Skid Row, like they, the county can send you like a military operative on deployment. So I was sent to work on Skid Row. I was given a 10-day notice, they call it. Uh, I, I lost all my overtime salary from working on the West Side. And so it, to me, felt like being sent into prison. And I went from, war, war, you know, so talk about the ego and the male ego. And, and it was crushing and yet at the same time when we get to this place of being totally vulnerable which is really you know hard for men and i think hard for professionals as we get you know more education we get further from this place of in being broken people can feel that we're truly there for them and so you know some days i was just signing a piece of paper to help someone get a homeless bus pass some days uh you know anything writing a letter to their landlord that they didn't have means or sometimes getting them into a training program for you know uh, these pharmacy programs art programs that are almost all paid by taxpayers so the ability to be in this place and to be broken yet ready to connect and help um You know, there's something that I think was like a a rebirth for me. And so anybody who has a chance to do a project like that, and and if you're in Los Angeles like we are, there's more, I think, missions per capita in downtown L.A. than anywhere else in the world. Uh, And and there is this tremendous – I think there's a group of runners that goes out from the Midnight Mission a few times a week at 5 a.m. So I know that there are homeless people that are running alongside you in the L.A. Marathon. So there's just – you know there is opportunity there if you're willing to to be humble and see what difference you can make from that place absolutely
0: all right so if you look
1: back and
0: and you wanted to get a second chance on something that you experienced what is there something that comes to mind that you'd like to do over that that you went through one time
1: personally or professionally
0: Hopefully, professional I think it's whatever's real to you,
1: yeah I would just say that the willingness to trust myself that that I wanted to be with athletes that that you know that 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 there's an ability and a confidence to go after it and not be afraid of uh imposter syndrome or anything like that. You know, so I think you know. I don't know if that's one decision or many decisions. So, um, you know, like I said, I do feel like the the county uh, it gave me some experiences. It showed me certain angles, but I do think there's a level of trusting internally that that this is the work I want to do and who I want to work with, and and not. Necessarily being uh, you know afraid of rejection along the way, um, and just trusting who I was that if I was just a, a jerk on the bus on the sideline that uh, I could be a good teammate and I could add value to those young athletes sooner That's great um, looking
0: at your career along similar lines, um, did you ever come up against? you know, after you spent some time with someone or a situation that you just felt overwhelmed and it was just so challenging that you kind of got down on yourself a little and was wondering, is this for me?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the experience, what, you know, being a, uh, it's funny how experiences build upon themselves. I mean, so being out there as a crisis responder, going to the front lines, it felt very heroic, you know, name on my shirt, you know, uh, literally the County shield on the other shoulder. Uh, there's a pride there, but being out there and going into environments that, that aren't safe or knowing that people may have weapons in the home or, or acting in a way that's unpredictable Um, so, you know, at times I had, my partner was pregnant, you know, you're just not quite sure of a degree of violence. So there's a degree of burnout that, that can happen, um, which will be covered in in my book, uh, crossing the threshold coming up this year. So, yeah, well, I think if you're in extreme burnout and and your, your sleep is off because you're so committed to, uh, fighting crisis at some point, I think they say, you know, um, you know, be careful how long you you look into the abyss because eventually it starts looking back at you. So uh, the feeling of of depression, burnout, of it's too much, it's uh, too overwhelming, and you you're helpless. That can be kind of like a, a chasing the dragon phenomenon where you you just keep going to try and avoid feeling helpless. So I think that that was definitely there in in seeing the widespread crisis response. Uh, te- you know neat suicidal tendencies and, and and threats that are out there in society that can be really overpowering so
0: how do you deal with that you know let's say the guy across from you man or woman that you're working with is heavily depressed burnout or suffering from other, other mental illness or even suicidal how do you draw from inside to connect with them and help them?
1: Well, I mean, you know, it's very difficult because when you're in a professional role, you're in the role of protecting them from themselves. So, um, it's, it's fine line between staying in this place of empathy and connection and healing and letting them know that whatever pain they're feeling, you're with them. And that you will sit there with them and help them process and you will be there for them with consistency. And if they need more, they can ask for more. I think that's the best way to model, uh, you know, within reason, right? Because if we did, we can if we did that for every one of our clients, 24 hours a day, uh, there would be no boundaries and we wouldn't be very healthy. We'd be on this threshold like you're talking about of being overwhelmed. So everybody has to realize their own boundaries. But within that, when somebody is going through a sudden loss when they're going through something, overpowering, being able to be there for them with consistency and show them that you you will hold the space for those emotions and that you will create a place to process these very deep uncomfortable emotions. If a man is not comfortable crying, screaming, it's very okay in your session to, uh, if you need to hit, scream, break, punch, you know, those things need to come out. It's just like we've been taught it's not okay to do those things in society because it could hurt hurt, hurt somebody else. But absolutely having a place to release and um, helping clients identify if it's one thing that they feel good doing while they're grieving, um, you know, or to, to, to process their anger or one place, I want them to keep going there. Uh, and if I'm the only person that can be there, at least initially until we find – two and three and four people to create their new little tribe or village, whatever's going to help them stay safe. Uh, we want to build that together. Cool. So this is challenging work that you're involved
0: in. And (laughs) I'm curious to know what happens when you come home after a tough day, do you bring your work at home at all? Or, you know, how do you, how do you deal with that? Uh, your feelings and emotions have been stirred so much.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's it's been really challenging. We've certainly been through Corona here and protests. It's It's been literally at our door and around us. So I think it's very hard for the fight or flight not to take over. Uh, the great thing about some of the practices, the somatic experience work is learning how to you know, do certain things to literally shake off the tension, Uh, maybe not to go directly into the house. So uh, although I like to exercise and endorphins are a great way to fight off stress, uh, at times it may be um, not, not going directly in the house, taking a walk. I may need a few minutes to figure out even what I'm feeling, what was triggered by the last client you know, we can't always predict when it's two, three, four people having a really intense process in the same time of the day. Uh, We can't always schedule it out where it's going to go like a roller coaster. Oh, this will be easier. This will be lighter. We don't know what's going to come towards us. So I think, you know, having a a healthy regimen of self-care, I myself have a a group of men that I meet with on a regular basis that uh, just that I can check in with about how I'm doing in my various roles in my life and where I need more support. So I think as practitioners, whether you be with athletes or on the front lines of combat mental health, there needs to be a place where you can debrief. If you've seen war trauma or or violence, you need a place to be able to release that into some container where you feel it's safe. So you're not holding it all inside all the time. Uh, so, and some, some about, you know, there's, it's okay to have some healthy diversions and fun, I try and do a little bit of that too, so that your brain is not sitting around thinking when's the next crisis assessment. So sports can be good like that. You know, in quarantine, it's been board games. It's been, uh, baseball cards, breaking out some old stuff, things that had meaning in childhood. It can be really silly. And, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not afraid to be the cliche. If you had something you did or like to do that feels good to you you know, preserve that. When did you
0: feel that a a shift in you when you felt like you you knew you needed help to let go of this and, and get support from some of these other men in your life or a professional, whatever it is? Tell us about you know, were you resistant at first, or having had experience in it, were you just like, "Oh gosh,
1: I need to get some help with this. It's overwhelming." I think, unfortunately, you know, I'm, I'm not. I'll admit, I, I carried the stigma within me that I'm supposed to be strong. Not only in my family as the big brother, uh, not only as the uh, the son who did a, some caregiving for my father before he left us uh, a year ago, Um, you know, but so there was, and I'm supposed to have the answers. I'm supposed to have the PhD. And I don't think that I was aware that carrying that responsibility, the cost and and that eventually that the dam would break. So I I think there were moments uh, where I started certainly this sudden loss of control and move to skid row was one of those pieces where uh, feeling out of control, feeling like you don't have the answers, feeling helpless to solve that big a problem, like of homelessness and, um, and realizing, you know, it was like a whole paradigm shift that occurred. So something really challenging and painful caused an initial reach out to help. But certainly uh, the grief uh, experience was one that, that showed me I need much, much more um, because it's, it's such an experience where, you're walking around the world and other people cannot see what you're going through. And so that it can become very isolating in that way. And as professionals, if we're sitting in front of other people and we're trying to be present, but we feel invalid ourselves, it's not a very healthy place to give care from. So it just became clear that I needed uh, oxygen and I needed it fast And, uh, you know, it's funny how help works for, because there've been people, there've been men who've offered this help over time. And so knowing that it's there and then knowing that you could grab the olive branch was, you know, it was refreshing, but, but, but looking back, this had been offered to me probably over the previous five, eight years. Cool. And I probably could have benefited from it sooner. Yeah. Sure.
0: Sure. So you grew up in New York, Long Island, is that correct? That's right. Let's go Mets. Let's, let's go Mets. You're right. So, <laughs> you mentioned your dad. How would you characterize him as a man?
1: Uh, he was a, a loyal man. He was a serious man. Uh, you know, he loved classical music. I think he was a little bit, he was burdened and pained and, and probably the uh, last 20 years, you know, pretty depressed. Mm. Um, but he was a he was a good man he was loyal uh and he was uh he he cared he cared about everybody that came to our house so people it's only become clear to me in the last year that probably i got more of my desire to go into the healing profession from him even though he didn't have a college degree than from Mm. anywhere else
0: so was he tough on you, or did he show you love? Did he discuss feelings and emotions? How did he handle that?
1: You know, there were some early years where on Friday night I would come home and he would he would make, you know, he would say, Richard, my boy. And I remember being filled up. like He, he was proud that he had a son. But uh, beyond that, I think he kind of fell in that depression era, man who kind of buried all his emotions, and especially as he sunk in a depression, the last, you know, 20, 25 years, he didn't show very much. He didn't em- emote very much, uh, and probably just kind of went within himself and tended probably towards more, uh, habits like overeating and things like that. So, uh, not as much love being expressed. Yep. You can identify. Um,
0: so today's norm, I mean, uh, today most, most guys, their masculinity norms are archaic. And I think to an extent, all of us uh, grew up with that experience. Um, when was it that you realized that um, masculinity norms don't have to be that hard, tough, John Wayne type of guy
1: um i mean i'm a male in a, in a largely female dominated profession um i i've i've care very much for my younger sister i grew up you know so I was always around a lot of different girls. I was always like a, a guy, a girl's best friend kind of guy, very young age. So learning the the value of friendships um, and being a listener, maybe it's because I saw my mom being a guidance counselor and doing some of those behaviors that, that, that helped. I would say that in my adulthood, being around men who were a part of child rearing, being a part of a, a spiritual community where, uh, women were also being asked to go to the head of the the class and teach and take leadership roles. I think that's created uh, a little more, bit more balance in the sense of you know anyone can do to, within within reason that that things can be shared. And I think within my own experience. That, that all experience, that drive to be the man, the one who has all the money, the provider, it just felt so distant to me. And it felt like it was pushing relationships really far away and down the road. And so, you know, in my own experience, having to be humble, having to be a student while my wife was uh, working kind of showed me that you, you know, you have to give trust to, to get trust. And so I think it's a constant corrective experience because it wants to come back in It's somehow these old ideas. Um, And and so it it takes a lot of internal, internal work. On the other hand, there's parts of masculinity, things like holding a hammer and, you know, making a fire that I didn't learn how to do and that now I'm embracing uh, learning how to do. So I think it just the place that you come from in relationship to some of these tasks uh which is the big difference
0: personally i uh when i started self discovery i i saw um, uh, the abuse that I lived through in my uh uh in my life with my parents physical emotional um, verbal did you uh, see that in in your family at all when you were growing up?
1: You know, there was uh, I saw your question and, and, you know, there, there was, you know, there was family abuse. It was not necessarily in our direct abuse. I said my father was the youngest of four sisters. I think he, uh, he had four older sisters. So I think he absorbed a lot of their, uh, verbal abuse and things like that and just kind of ate it. Um, uh, I mean, physical abuse nowadays, we would say getting hit by the belt or, or getting a shot in the arm is physical abuse. Um, you know, I don't know that I can count more than on a ha- one hand how many times my father did that, but those those times were memorable. And I could definitely tell there was a part of him that was really rageful and out of control uh, or felt that way as, as a father so you know there were those experiences and I think that uh, they, they do get ingrained on your brain in terms of your identity or, or how loved you feel or confused um, rather than, than learning from a particular experience you just feel uh, there's a shame through punishment that we now understand uh, in our field probably is not the, the ideal way to get a child to change or to create a loving environment. Uh, when you were young growing
0: up, did you ever uh, display any risky behavior um, Drinking, drugging,
1: uh, you know, violence. Um You know, I don't think I went towards violence. I think I was, uh, you know, pretty much in my head, always thinking about things and uh, sensitive to people. Uh, There definitely was, I I kind of always say, one of my bigger regrets around, uh, I, I had two guys in my high school that were, were like basketball driven towards the highest level. They were writing coaches every day after school and their homework. And uh, I think I was a little bit more susceptible to peer pressure. I was afraid of rejecting my friends who were, who were staying out experimenting with marijuana and, and drinking. And so the beer, the keg parties on the bridge is what we had in our town. So, you know, I don't know that I ever got out of control with it, but I definitely feel that the temptation or the refusal to choose and commit to my true desire, which was to, to play college basketball, um, that, right, it, it, it was a sabotage mechanism, but, it, but it's this, right, idea to get some of the gratification or love from somewhere else when it's not coming in the home. Right.
0: right. Well, now you're a father. You have children. So how do you characterize yourself as a father to your children?
1: It's a really good question. I mean, you know, obviously uh, there's there's now, especially looking at the anniversary of my dad, there's days that I, I've As as much as I've tried, as much as I made commitments to be very different, uh, that there are patterns that that show back up. So um, I think at times I'm there – I coach their sports teams. You try and give them – I took, you know, one of my sons to like a summer full of baseball games, and I think, you know, those moments and those experiences in creating – also being a a younger father – uh, gives me a chance to even be at play with my kids on the field. So, uh, I like them to see more of that in me. I think they also get the serious principled, spiritual driven, especially during this quarantine, making sure we have family dinners, making sure that there's respect at the table. The discussions have come up about race and injustice. And I want to encourage all that, but you cannot be accusing someone for having a different, perspective or tendency. So, uh, you know, I think they they, uh, they both get the stern uh, foot uh, of putting the law down and, and they also get a goofy, you know, do anything to make them laugh because I know how serious and heavy it's been uh, for them. You know, I just assume the last five months and uh, I want them to have you know, joy and, and feel love, but I also recognize with children, they're not always going to want it in the way you want to show it and finding that balance between like being a discipline rule, asking for commitments and responsibilities and yet giving them the leeway to grow up in the way that they want to see the world. Uh, it's, it's a challenge, but I think they, they, they each see that I, that I'm, I'm, I'm in it to create that for them. That's great. That's great. And
0: uh, one last question. If, how would you describe what masculinity is?
1: It's oh, a great question to define that. I think masculinity is um, courage. It's strength. It's the willingness to stand up for what's right in the world it's the ability to create meaningful protected safe environments and relationships of trust um it's the ability to have uh, ownership over all the areas of your life from your intimate personal life your relationships to your work Uh, to family, to to how we see ourselves in the world. So it's a a complicated relationship, but it's an identity that has many different layers that can constantly be peeled away and and looked at and improved upon. Right.
0: Well, as you can see, Richard's story is quite remarkable. Dr. Richard is a self-made man of courage, bravery, and giving to his community, true role model for our world today. We're honored to have you on our podcast today. Any final thoughts you'd like to share with us?
1: Uh, just, you know, for anybody who is in a, in a crisis based on uh, the quarantine, I'm happy to give a, a free 30-minute consult to anyone who mentions this this show. And I'm grateful for the work you're doing out there to, to address that picking up the phone, reaching out for help, as uncomfortable and hard as it may seem, and as awkward as it may seem, and against everything you've learned emotionally Uh, that you're not alone in this world and uh, letting yourself be supported as a man, you may get to experience, you know, new kinds of love, connection, healing and purpose. And it's never, it's never too late. It's never too late no matter how dark it seems. Um, So if I can be a resource or connect you to resource uh, resources, or whether it's your local AA group or men's group, whatever is going to help you get connected to something outside of yourself. um, uh, Please have faith that there is more to live for, no matter what recent experience has taught you.
0: Excellent. Well, Richard, I look forward to continuing our dialogue moving forward so I can learn from you, so I can help others. Thank well, you, Sam. You again, please, yeah,
1: please please, share with me about your book, and we can get it up on Instagram and, and promote it to, to all the men and, and women out there that are married or, or dating men that are trying to get them help. Uh, you know, It's really universal. It's great to connect to you, and I hope, uh, whether it's on a podium or in a baseball stadium seat, to, to see you soon.
0: You bet. Listeners, please look out for the Time Out for Mental Health podcast where you get your podcasts and keep your eyes out for my new book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, a simple book for men about depression, masculinity, and suicide.